I'm Dr. Lara Devgan. I'm a plastic surgeon in New York City, the CEO of Scientific Beauty, and of course, a major beauty enthusiast. You are listening to Beauty Bosses, where we chat with fellow industry leaders who are shaping beauty, fashion, wellness, and all things pretty. Hello, everyone. I have an amazing guest on this week's episode of Beauty Bosses, Rebecca Minkoff, founder and designer of Rebecca Minkoff. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I suddenly feel like I need to step into surgery with you. <laughs> You're already you very fit? beautiful. Me, please. <laughs> you need nothing, um, but uh, thank you for the compliment. And I'm so excited to have you because I love your work. So can you tell everyone a little bit about you? Sure. So I moved here when I was 18 to work for a designer. Mm-hmm. I uh, then went out on my own after about three years. I was fired, just being honest. Um, Why did you get fired from that first job? She said, you know what you're doing, go do it. She could tell I was extraordinarily passionate about my projects and back before any type of social media in the design room when we got our stuff done, there was literally nothing to do. You know, um, It was a very limited design company. And I was bored out of my mind, so I started working on my own things. And she was fine with that until she saw that like all my effort and creation and ideation was going into my stuff, not the company's. Back in those days when you were you know, 18 to 20 years old, um, what were your designs like? What were your first designs like? Oh man, I loved a jersey. Like that was the, like cutting up t-shirts or making dresses out of jersey. If you are really good at Google and you go back into my first shows, everything was made out of unstructured cotton um and that's just I guess what I wanted to wear okay so you got fired from this job and then it was kind of like a promotion in a way even though you said you got fired when your boss says that I've identified your creative spirit and you need to thrive that's you know that's kind of a great conversation to have in a way were you happy were you scared were you excited I was scared can we switch do you swear on this podcast or is it PG? Yes, you can swear on this podcast. I was scared shitless because let's just say I was making maybe three to four hundred dollars a week, which is tough to live on in New York City. Um, that income stream was gone, and it's not like my career was like taking off. Like I had orders for five thousand dollars and whatever, but that doesn't pay the bills. And so I was really, really scared. And the only thing I could hold on to was this "I Love New York" shirt that I was making um, and selling via one website and so for me that moment was just like okay I've got to make this work somehow so I began to hustle hard okay so that first sale though the I love New York shirt and that first website that's a that's still a pretty big deal how did you get that to happen well through unfortunate reasons 9-11 happened I had designed and sent the shirt to a famous celebrity Jenna Elfman on September 9th 2001 she got on the 13th wore it on Jay Leno and so it was an inadvertent you know my name being plugged on TV and it being in all these magazines just catapulted the name and and the website that I was selling it on um, for lots of people to buy and so that kept me in business um, and at least open the door so when I would call boutiques, they were like, I'm not sure what you make, but your name sounds familiar, so I guess we'll let you come show us your stuff. So that's kind of how it started. And then when you were first getting into boutiques and, um, and all of that, were you still a one-man band at that time? Were you working for yourself by yourself, or were you starting to develop a team? 
I was a one-man band. Um, if I was lucky, sometimes I would have interns for the summer, and they'd come to my apartment, my fifth floor walk up on the Lower East Side, and I could tell they were like, am I walking into a scam? I'm like, what <laughs> is going on? Like, why doesn't she have an office? Couldn't afford one. Um, but I had interns for a really long time. I didn't hire my first employee for probably three years just because we couldn't afford it as a company. Can you backtrack for a second and tell us a little bit about, like, what a startup budget in whatever detail you feel comfortable with, but what that looked like for you, like when you were back in those early days. So a startup budget is, there was definitely heat and momentum behind the bag. So cut to four years later. So I had the clothing line, I was barely making anything, um, designed one bag as an accessory to the collection, and that took off. Daily Candy wrote about it. Uh, I started getting all this inbound excitement and heat, and my brother joined me as my co-founder to really help build out the business side of things. And he basically, when he could see the orders going from 100,000 to you know 150 to 250, like every few months there are these jumps, he basically was like, all right, there's something here. I'm gonna fund the growth of this. I'm not gonna invest money, but I'm gonna like, in each phase I'll pay for the production. And then he said, how much money do you need to live? Like bare bones. And when I added it up, it was like, Basically, rent and food was $23,000 a year, and that was my salary. Um, and that was extraordinarily hard to live on. Um, but I did it. That's and then one day I begged him, I was like, I need a bicycle. <laughs> and then please he, buy he me a bike. increased your salary a little. He's like, okay, we'll buy you the bike. <laughs> and then that's it. You're cut off. Oh, yeah. So I made that for like two or three years, and then I made $45,000. And then I was like, oh, my God, I can like have a drink when I'm out instead of, I can actually go out to eat now. You know, $23,000, you can't really do much on that. Wow. And so, because when people think about major designers, and um, you're definitely in that category, which we'll get to in a minute, but when people think about that, they think about being bankrolled from the start. And I think in 2019, it can be a very different landscape. A lot of people get um, investors at a super early stage. Was that something that you ever thought about? So that wasn't trendy or in the zeitgeist at the time. Now it's like, oh, I have a great idea, fund me. Um, and I, what I think that people don't realize is you're not getting money for free. Um, you are giving up huge chunks of your company uh, with people that have very high expectations of what they want back. And so their priorities might not align with yours. And sometimes it's great. But a lot of the time you're stuck you know, working for the man. And so my brother and I were really conscious about not wanting to take money for as long as we could. So he funded it with credit cards, with uh, mortgaging his house, um, and we got to a point where we could actually afford to have a bank work with us that specializes in this in within fashion. They're mm -hmm. called Rosenthal and Rosenthal. So we were able to leverage them, and then it wasn't until seven years in that we decided to take private equity money to like do the next big growth shop. What was your decision-making process in um, deciding to take on investors after being self-funded and keeping all this equity for so long? Uh, it was a relief, part of it. Like, <laughs> oh, we can like not be running, rubbing pennies together. Um, but also it was like, okay, now four times a year, you got to worry about a board meeting and all these reports. And how do you talk to the board members and give them the information they wanted? And they don't know anything about your business. And then they... You know, you have to educate them. So I think it was a lot of teaching and learning, and it was great for what it was, but 
we decided ultimately like that was not a good fit for us. Really? And now what's the ownership of the company like? So it's my brother and myself and one other partner. And he came in, took the other guys out. He represents a family office and it's just been a great, it's, it's what we need right now. It's like one person, you talk to them every Friday, there are no board meetings. That's yeah. really great. Yeah. It's kind of keeping it lean and sort lean. of the heart of it. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to go back to this time period where you're getting these big orders for the first time. You're working with your brother. Your salary's going up a little. Um, what was the what was the what was the big break moment for you? I think there's been several. Whether it's your first department store order or like a big magazine. Um, whether it's Marie Claire at the time or Glamour in style, I think that all these, L did a big feature on the company back then, and I think that those all were very powerful because, again, social media was just getting started. Um, so I kind of think it was like lots of things all happening just successively over time. There was not one big moment. Um, yeah, and I missed my Oprah opportunities, so. I know, right? Yeah. No couch jumping for you. No couch jumping for me. <laughs> but I feel like Oprah makes awesome cameos from time to time, and you could always jump up on furniture near her if, if that comes up. It could, but I feel like her platform isn't as powerful where she pops up now like versus her rabid fan base. So I'm just hoping she brings the show back at some point, and then I, I can go jump on her couch. That would be amazing, yeah. and it could be like, you get a Rebecca McGoffin, you get a Rebecca McGoffin. Totally. <laughs> that would be amazing. Everyone would freak out and cry. Oh my They'd God, look I under would... their seats. Maybe it should be like a lip gloss. I'll put my skincare line under there. Let's your do stuff. it. Let's t- I feel like we have a collab <laughs> right now. So awesome. Um, tell me kind of how you would describe your brand, the ethos of the brand, who's your customer, who are the people that you live and breathe for, and you know who are your Rebecca Minkoff people? So I would say as far as an aesthetic, we definitely are talking to you know the spirit of the West Coast meets the East Coast, a little bohemian from the West versus like the rock and roll of the East, specifically New York. Um, and then the mindset is, you know, a woman who wants to feel more confident. She, she definitely has very specific memories around her products. And so a lot of the women that I meet are like, I met you when I got that, you know, I bought your first bag when I got that promotion or, um, that raise, or I took you to my first cool concert. And so it's like definitely these single moments in a woman's life. We call them her firsts and there's always a first, even if it's a second, um, and so I think that we're there, we're that brand for her that like gives her that extra, I got this without also being um, very logo heavy and this how much I paid for my bag. It's more like this bag made me feel confident and stylish. I love that because I feel like, especially in New York, it can almost feel like the script has, the script has flipped a little bit where the pursuit of fashion and the joy of carrying a beautiful item or wearing something that makes you feel confident can almost sometimes on a cynical day feel like a display of conspicuous consumption and like materialism in physical form of garments. And so I kind of like style and I love what you do because I love style that's just chic and it's like, it's it's almost above and beyond that. Right. 
It's not relying on the anchor of this plaque that says, this is how much I spend. It's more like our woman loves being just the package of being recognized for her style. So my logo has always been a little bit small on the back. I might be being forced to put it a little bit bigger on the front, but it's still very tiny and very, you know, inconspicuous. I like it. Understated, classy, elegant. Um, How has the evolution of your company changed with new trends in social media and influencer marketing and kind of press today is totally different than in 2001 when you were first coming on the scene. And tell us about that evolution from 2001 to 2019. So we were really the first fashion brand to talk to our consumer, to engage her on social. We had interventions with every the most expensive department stores in the world telling us like what were we doing we shouldn't talk to our customer we shouldn't be on social that was dirty um obviously today it's a very different landscape but those were the conversations that we were having in 2005 and we just felt like there was a magic to being able to talk to our consumer um, and so for us it was never something that we had to have a strategy about it was very organic how we sort of kept that connection going as all these platforms emerged um, so we use it to continue the conversation. We use it to get people's opinions, good and bad. Um, and we also, you know, again, first brand to use influencers, whether it was in a campaign or on our runway show, and just really leveraging the good that social can offer to companies to just be at the forefront of that conversation. Do you think that influencer marketing is over? I'm like reading all these business of fashion articles about how it's dead and etc. I'm just curious what your perspective is as someone who's obviously brilliant and thought about this once or twice. So I think the people that are writing this wish it were you over and if I'm being selfish as a brand it's definitely hard to um, afford what some of these people are now charging that you used to work with. Um, I don't think it's over. I think it's going to evolve. If Instagram takes away likes it's definitely going to evolve. Um, but I think you need to have those ambassadors and until someone invents a, a, a new, you know, the new whatever, this is our way of reaching people who admire these women for the style they have, for whatever it is they're talking about. So I don't think it's going away, but it'll always be evolving. I just, I don't think anyone's figured what, out what that is yet. Is your main strategy focusing on Instagram and Facebook or are you also into Snapchat and TikTok and some of the newer things? So this will probably make make the listeners realize that I'm old. Uh, I'm sure we should You're be... You're not old because we're peers. We <laughs> so are, but young like, and TikTok's vibrant. coming up and I'm like, I can't, I can't do it. It's kind of like how elder people are like, I'm good with Facebook. And I'm like, you're an old person. Like, who bothers with Facebook? <laughs> so I know I should be on TikTok. I, I, I'm not. Maybe we'll get, we'll hire a young person to get on TikTok. Maybe your son can be your TikTok ambassador. He could. That's a really good idea. I feel like she'd be precocious at it. Yeah, for sure. But, yeah, I know. I'm working on that. I'm not really sure what to make of it, but (laughs) I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how you have grown as a company? Like, you started with zero employees, and then you convinced your brother to come along. How many are you now? We're now about 55. So we've been as big as 115. Um, that was probably the most difficult time in our company because you got too big and you had so many layers and you had so many people that 
told you they could like run teams and then they couldn't and then my brother and I just realized we were actually more involved more involved in the company than we were when there was less people so we actually said you know what we want to get it rid of the middle cut the fat and like let's just go back to basics to how it was so we're at a we're at a good number at 55 now what percentage of your um, sales are in person versus online and do you think that's going to change in the future I think it has to change. I think when you look at the total market for what happens online, it's still shocking that it's still like under 10%. I believe the transactions U.S. are under 10% online. Really? Yeah. Wow. So even though retail is dying, you know, quote unquote, we haven't even tapped into the poss- like the wealth of people that can shop online. Um, I would say about 25% of our D2C business is online um, of our total business, but that doesn't count like all of our other stores that we sell to that have online businesses. And how important is it to you, either relatively or kind of more specifically, um, to liaise and sell to the customers directly versus to work with bigger partners like department stores and others who are going to sell for you? I think you want to strike that fine balance. You know, only we can tell our customer the the whole brand story. A department store is always going to slice it up to tell their story and all, you know, their combining of all the stories in their store. And so I think it's important to be selling to them. You know, they're advertising, they're getting into markets that you could never be in. Um, But you have to make sure that you have the strongest storytelling and that that is what cuts through. So that the person sees all that and then goes maybe into this department store to buy, but that they realize that it's your ethos and what you stand for that they're buying into. What do you think about um, this kind of tension between wanting to keep fashion fresh and affordable versus the current backlash against fast fashion and um you know, disposable pieces and things like that. Like, what's your sort of brand take on that and your plan for mitigating that? So we transitioned back in 17 to a see-by-wear model. So you were buying and showing in season, which was, I'm, I'm being sarcastic, revolutionary uh, for the industry, but she it was. She did air quotes. It was cute. <laughs> <laughs> um, but really, that had the rest of the industry, if if everyone except for me, Tommy, and Burberry had adopted that, then these fashion retailers wouldn't have any brands to copy, and they would not have any customers trying to buy all the knockoffs, because we would be to market first. Right now, everyone shows all their fashion shows, leaks it all out, and then Zara and H&M, sorry, copy it. Um, But that wasn't changed. Like, a lot of people couldn't figure out the supply chain and how to do this. And so as long as people are going to showcase their collections and show everyone a preview, like they'll always be copied. And it's a lot of waste, first of all, Mm -hmm. aside from like the intellectual property of the ideas. Yeah. It's huge amounts of waste um, from an environmental perspective, but also human capital and human, human effort. And there's, there's gotta be a better way. I don't know other than telling these guys to not make as much money. I, you know, I think the consumer is changing and she'll vote. And she's voting, right? You see the sales at one of these companies declining. And so I think the more 
educated she is, she's like, you know what, I'll wait for that Rebecca Minkoff or I'll wait for that whatever it is because that's a person who designed it, conceived it, and didn't make 6,000, she made 300. Are you um, still the main design force of the company? I am, but in order to do things like my podcast and what I'm doing with female founders uh, and have three kids and not want to, like have burnout. Um, I hired someone to really help oversee the day-to-day, but I do all the creative direction, the trend, the color, the inspiration, but I'm no longer like rubbing fabrics together or picking the thread or like praying over the leather. Like I did that for 15 years. I think I'm good. Yeah, you're good. I know that's always the challenge of how to scale a growing business because you can't clone yourself. I think you cannot clone yourself and like you have to hire I'm just at this point I'm trying to hire people that are better than me and more talented than me and I feel like in every area of the company if I can do that then it allows me to focus on the areas where I'm the best um, as far as what I do day to day what do you think about um, intellectual property with regard to fashion are you seeing people knocking off your things or is that less less the case because you're showing in season? So you definitely still get knocked off. Um, fashion is tough because no designer, and they're lying to you if they say this, every designer looks at vintage and every designer takes inspiration from somewhere. And so I think that it's really, really hard to just say no one can ever copy me and that I've never gotten inspired by someone else. So it's a fine line. It's one thing if you're doing a knockoff and it's another if you're like, oh, I got inspired by the color of that chain or the quilting on your leather. Like, those are things. So it's going to happen, and it's been it's happened forever. Yeah. What are your personal favorite pieces from your line? Like, is there do you have one or two things that are your ride-or-die favorite great Rebecca Minkoff pieces? So I have a jacket. It's called the West Moto. It's kind of a cropped leather jacket, and I have the two of them from the original um, first run we did and I'll never get rid of them Um, and then I have some really great boots that we did some sort of biker boots that we have and um, I've saved you know a lot of the first bags I don't necessarily wear them anymore the first ones we did but I like they're in my shrine my shrine to my old stuff that's so awesome. What are your dreams and goals for um, the company in the next couple of years? So we have some aggressive goals. We're talking about lifestyle, full lifestyle brands. So that includes home. It could include kids. It could include extended sizing. It could include beauty. So those are all areas that we're exploring and uh, seeing like how would we do this? How do we want to navigate this? That's amazing. Yeah. Um, what advice do you have for young people listening to this podcast who are maybe thinking about careers in fashion or just the idea of being a designer and starting a company? I think that one thing I say a lot, and I hope I don't sound like a broken record, um, you need to approach your career as a long goal. Imagine your career just getting good 10 years in. There is no, you know, in our society, we're used to our groceries arriving with a click, our cars arriving with a click. You cannot Amazon Prime or Uber your way to success. There is no (laughs) shortcut. And if you found it good on you, 
Um, it requires hard work and grit and like commitment and like it doesn't allow for a lot of leisure in the beginning when you're building this and hanging out with your friends and going to parties. At least my, my story didn't. And so I think you have to be ready to work hard, whether it's for someone else or yourself, because you will have great opportunities, but they only come from hard work. They don't come from like saying like, oh my God, why didn't I get the raise? And oh my God, I'm working so hard, but like I come in at 10 and leave at four. Like you have to really work your butt off. Yeah. In, in surgery, there's this expression that there's no elevator to the top. You have to take the stairs. Yes. And it's like a 20... It's a walk up. <laughs> it's a walk up and it's like 80 stories tall. Yeah. That's kind of a New York joke, but I think most of our listeners are in, uh, in big cities, so they can relate. Yes. So this has been so fun for and amazing. Yeah. And um, can you tell people where to find out more about you and where to shop your line and all of that yes. stuff? Yes. So shopRebeccaMinkoff.com. Follow me at Rebecca Minkoff. If you're a podcast listener, listen to Super Women with Rebecca Minkoff. And uh, you're going to be coming on the podcast soon. So. I know. I'm so excited. Um, and that's such an honor because this is like mutual podcast admiration society. <laughs> um, and um, this has been so fun. So we can't wait to see what happens next and all your successes. And um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.